Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Robert Kerbeck in his book, Malibu Burning. Robert, at any given time, how many fires have we had going on this year? <laughs> too many. 13 at least, right? Yeah. yeah, too many. My mother was evacuated from the Easy Fire. My brother was nearly evacuated from the Saddle Ridge Fire. I had a friend evacuated from the Maria Fire. Isn't this unusual and weird? It is quite weird. It's quite weird, and it's very disturbing. And uh, it's put, you know, most of us in you know, you know, a you know, gigantic area of Southern California on a strange and constant alert. What's your gut tell you about this? You know, it just doesn't make sense to me that all of these fires are starting. Um, and um, now there are no coincidences. I know, as and, far and, as and I'm you concerned. know, and. You know, you know. I mean, uh, is there is there one person you know running around setting these fires, or is there some reason that fires are being set? Because it just doesn't make sense that so many fires are starting. I mean, we've lived, I've lived here for a long time now, and I've never seen so many fires in such a short period of time. I know, I know. That's what leads me to believe there's something else strange going on here. Yes, maybe PG and E had uh, some. You know, line problems and power problems that cause some fires. There's no doubt about that. But all of these, all at the same time, it's just strange. Yeah, and I said that to my wife. I said this just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I mean, I guess it's possible. You know, we, you know, you you know that you know you generally your your washer's got a certain amount of years on it, right? So when it gets to be 15 years old or 12 years old or whatever the number is, you go, okay, maybe it's time it's going to go. And so maybe it's possible that the infrastructure of the power companies, it, it, we've reached the kind of shelf life, and so all their equipment is failing at the same time. Um, but again, I, I don't know. It just is very odd. Are fire officials saying anything about the potential causes of these blazes? You know, they're not. Um, sometimes they do, but, you know, they want to be sure that they get it right, right? So they, they really sure. take their time. And, of course, the power companies hate to admit that they started a fire, especially a fire when people get killed. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, Edison just now, a year later, finally admitted that they were responsible for starting the Woolsey fire. Now, they know, though, exactly where these fires start because they start small, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and usually, you know, there's a... Uh, in the case of the the Woolsey fire, there was a failure of uh, electrical equipment, which the, the the utilities are required to report, and so they reported this failure of equipment, and then two minutes later, the fire was sighted at that at that spot. So, I mean, it was pretty obvious that their equipment had caused the fire, and yet they went a year before they finally, you know, owned up to that. Now, I hear insurance companies are starting to balk about insuring uh, houses out those ways. Yes, they are. As a matter of fact, I heard recently that someone's insurance went from, you know, let's say it was, uh, I don't know, I forget what the number was, it was $8,000 a year or $5,000 a year to $700,000 a year. 700000 Yeah. How so much they, is the house worth? <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably not much more than that, and that's the point, is that what they're basically doing is making it so that the home is it's uninsurable. And if it's uninsurable, you can't get a mortgage because the mortgage companies won't back you. That's right. And everything starts to collapse. This is, a, this is a huge story. It's a much bigger story. You put a lot of it in Malibu burning. Nobody's a step forward. You're, I think you're the first person. Well, thank you. I mean, it was important to me. I, I had never seen a book that, that 
what took you inside a wildfire. And what I tried to do is the opening chapter is, is the story that I told of my wife and son and I fighting to save our house. But all of the other chapters tackle the story from a different perspective. So people that came in and rescued countless animals, uh, even though they didn't have to, even though they didn't even live here, they came in and saved all of these animals, horses and dogs and, and even a tortoise. Um, um, then there's the stories of, of, of people that lost homes, a, a, a 17-year-old girl who lost the only bedroom she ever had, you know, everything she ever owned. And, as a, you know, you remember when it was a young person how important your room was to you, you know, your posters, your music, your, 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 your drawings, whatever it was, and to lose all of that and how does that affect you for the rest of your life. Um, teachers losing everything, uh, firefighters fighting to, to save neighborhoods, residents that stayed fighting to save entire neighborhoods. Um, so that, that was what I tried to do, is to get inside and to show what it is like on the ground during a wildfire. How can these poor firefighters keep up with all this? Well, I'll tell you, I think it, it's a challenge. It's really a challenge. Um, I think the homeowners have to do a lot more help. Um, and, you know, I mentioned the ember-resistant vents and clearing your brush, and I think those things can really help the firefighters a lot. Um, um you know, and I think one of the big things we're seeing now is that the aerial equipment really can make a big difference. These Firehawk helicopters are incredible. The pilots that fly them, it's just, you know, unbelievable. Um, and, of course, there are these super scooper planes. But the issue with the super scooper planes, um, which, you know, again, they're phenomenal, too, but they can't fly in the heavy winds. And as we talked about earlier in the program, usually these fires, these massive fires, are wind-driven events. And when the winds get above 30 miles an hour, the super scooper planes can't fly. And that's when the Firehawk helicopters take over. So when I interviewed uh, Deputy uh, Fire Chief Vince Pena, who was phenomenal and, and, and really cooperative, he said if he'd had six more Firehawk helicopters, he could have stopped the fire in Woolsey Canyon, where it started, before it even spread off that Jeez, location. that would have been great. And it's a catch-22, because the winds fuel the fire, and the fire fuels the wind. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and it creates its own weather pattern. And, and as we saw in my neighborhood, we literally had a fire tornado. Um, so imagine that, fire and oh. smoke starting to swirl in front of you. Yeah, the cover on your book, Malibu Burning, is frightening. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, a uh, you know... That, what I love about that shot is it shows the hell that is coming. From, from the perspective of where the picture was taken, can you feel that heat? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely smell the smoke, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, you feel the, the hairs on your arm crackling. Now, what happens 10 years from now, Robert, when people start coming down with lung cancer or something? Is that conceivable? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... One of the chapters in the book, um, you know, deals with that secret nuclear site, and I interviewed this gentleman, Professor Dan Hirsch, and he basically estimated that 40,000 tons of toxic material um, was sent into the atmosphere. Uh, oh, by, my by God. Yeah, the place was vacant, though, right? The Santa Susana Field Laboratory was vacant, but remember, the toxins... Uh, had never been cleaned up, so they were in the soil. They just left everything there. They just left everything there. So they, pre in the 40s, um, it was the site, it was called Rocket Dine, and they did a lot of engine testing of rockets. And then in the 50s, they put in nuclear power plants. And in 1959, they had an accident. They didn't tell anybody. 
They didn't even have a containment dome uh, as there was at Three Mile Island. And actually, there, were, there was more radiation released in the 1959 meltdown uh, than there was at Three Mile Island. There was a book written about we almost lost Detroit, where I'm from. Yes. And uh, they literally almost had a meltdown there. Yes, and yes, that's right. And this one, the plant was going to explode, and rather than let it explode, they just vented the radiation into the atmosphere and didn't tell anyone. But this seems to be the worst year I can remember in California that I've ever heard of fires and so many at one time. I think you're right. I, 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 I mean, you know, we've lived here a long time. I've never seen, it was like a fire every day, two fires every day. In different places. Different places. And that's the scary thing is that places that maybe normally wouldn't see fires, the San Fernando Valley, um, you, know, um, you know, I think you know that area. I mean, you know, we, we're, oh, yeah. we're, we're not used to seeing fires in the San Fernando Valley. No, no, there was in a couple spots there. It was horrible. Yeah. I, I hate to say this, Robert, but I have a feeling that there's something else going on and that law enforcement and government is afraid to tell us. I think they're definitely afraid to tell us. I mean, after the fire, um, the authorities told, um, you know, all these different authorities were telling the cities who were concerned about the toxins and the radioactive materials you know, what happens with these radioactive materials, cesium, strontium, plutonium, which, of course, don't go away in our lifetimes. So they're in the soil, and then as vegetation grew on the site, and, of course, the site was abandoned, and you know how California works. Things grow, and, they, and the chaparral grows. So now the chaparral is soaking up these toxins and radioactive materials, and then when the fire burns them and the winds blow them, there was really no way to track where those materials ended up. And I know a couple of people wanted to do some testing, and they were told by the authorities, everything's okay, nothing to worry about, no tests needed. And some of those reports came out 10 hours after the fire had started. So the fire wasn't even finished. There was no way to do any testing, let alone obtain the results, and yet it was fine. No, you don't have to worry about you know, radioactive materials in your backyard. Why did you elect to stay in Malibu? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, if I had a choice, I, I would leave. Um, my son is a junior in high school, um, and you know how that goes. He's got his friends. These are kids he's known since kindergarten. The Malibu community is a very tight community, and the fire has made the community even tighter. I mean, that's been the silver lining in this. Um, people have been amazing. Um, I didn't have one person, including major celebrities, turn me down for an interview for for the book. Um, as a matter of fact, the only entity that turned me down was Southern California Edison. They were the only ones that would not speak to me. Of course not. They didn't no. know what to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> I guess not. I Unbelievable. Guess not. Who were who some of the most prominent people you talked to? You know, my favorite story in the book, you know, I mean, all these celebrities make appearances, Leonardo DiCaprio and, and uh, Bob Dylan, and, but my favorite story is um, the actor Kevin Dylan. Um, Kevin lived across the street from Nick Nolte, and um, when the fire started, Nick Nolte's house caught on fire. And so he was over there with a couple of other neighbors that had stayed behind, and they were fighting this fire, massive fire, with garden hoses. And he showed me some of the videos of these guys, you know, you know, literally risking life and limb. And, of course, in the case of Kevin, he's an actor. You know, getting burned is probably not going to be good for his career. And yet he was over there trying to save Nick Nolte's place, in an odd twist, his movie star brother, Matt Dillon, 
was on location in Europe shooting a movie playing Nick Nolte's son. Wow. And Matt was calling Kevin because he had found out that Kevin had stayed behind saying, you know, get the hell out of there. What are you doing? Get the hell out of there. Not knowing that Kevin was actually fighting to save Nick Nolte's house. Robert, Unfortunately, he was unable to save Nick Nolte's house. It burned to the ground. Tell us what it's like to be in your house, to see a fire coming, knowing that you could possibly lose all your possessions, everything you've had since you were younger, perhaps. Because, you know, your house is your domicile. It's, it's, it's where you keep your life, basically. Right. What's it like knowing all that's about to go? Do you think about that? Yeah, I think you do. And, you know, one of the things I call it in the book, um, the myth of it's just stuff, right? And, you know, sometimes you'll hear the authorities say, oh, well, you know, you know, just evacuate. It's just stuff. And, you know, certain things, you know, are really irreplaceable, you know, uh, family heirlooms. Um, you know, I, I'm very into genealogy, and I have family trees uh, that, you know, ancestors had done. And, you know, all of those things, you know, they're handwritten. You know, there's, you can't replace those. Those were gone. You know, uh, you know that, that, that would be history for, you know, a couple hundred years gone. So there's things like that. Um, and then, of course, the other thing that people don't really talk about is the difficulty of rebuilding. Um, it is a long, difficult, and expensive pro- process. Um, in my neighborhood, you know, we had almost 200 homes gone. A year later, four just started to be rebuilt, four out of approximately 200. Um, so I think that most of these homeowners are going to be out of their homes for three to five years. And Jeez. when you think about that, you know, there's a lot of stress involved with that. It's a full-time job dealing with that. And, of course, you know, most times you have another job, so now you have to do this on top of it. And and I think that's one of the interesting things when I talk about homeowners who did evacuate. Um, many of them talk about staying the next time. I had uh, a guest, I have a guest, L.A. Marzulli, who lived out in that area, and he lost everything in, his, in the fire, everything. Uh, he had, uh, his business was uh, biblical DVDs and things like that that he produced. His masters were there. He lost everything. He ended up moving to Oklahoma with his wife. Wow. Did not want to come back. And I understand that. You know, I really do. I understand that. I mean, there there is a certain... Um you know, desolation here right now. Um, and um, I know your listeners, again, you know, it, it, you know, Malibu is such a beautiful place, but um, it's really, it's really taken a hit. And when you buy the house, you really never think about it burning. No. You're looking at it, it's gorgeous, it's serene, and you don't think of the whole place engulfed in flames. No, you don't. And then when it happens, oh boy. Yeah. How many firefighters generally are on the scene fighting a fire? They, they didn't have enough people. I mean, you can't fight 13 fires at one time. No, no. And, and you know, as I said, we had that, uh, you know, you know the, again, Deputy uh, uh, Penius called it, you know, a perfect storm where they had, you know, these three massive fires, you know, the campfire up north, which took, which took a lot of resources. You know, one of the things about firefighters is they work on this uh, mutual aid, uh, they call it, where, you know, uh, one department puts out the call for help. And firefighters come from all over the state or and, and, out, and outside of the state from different, uh, different states. But in this case, um, because Paradise was first, so many of the resources went there that um, 
that there just weren't a lot of resources for Woolsey. And of course, they didn't know that it was going to become this, you know, um, unprecedented wildfire. And so that initial morning that the fire hit Malibu, there were very few engines. Um, and a lot of residents were really surprised by that and shocked by that because in past fires, there had been engines. Um, and there was a lot of frustration about that because, as you can imagine, you know, you're, you're looking for help. And, you know, you're, and, and in case of a fire, you're looking for the firefighters. And they just did not have the boots on the ground. No, they did not, and uh, it, it's it's sad. I mean, and I I guess helpers came in from other states. They did, and they did. But again, um, when I interviewed um, the fire personnel, uh, they did not have the resources they wanted until the third day of the fire. And think about that: the third day of the fire, not even the second day of the fire, the third day of the fire. And so by then, eighty to ninety percent of the damage was already done. President claims he gave the state money to fight these things and to prevent them. What do you think? Say that one more time. The president claimed that he gave California money to fight these things. You know, I, I saw the, the, the tweet storm going back and forth between the governor of California and, um, and President Trump. And the, the thing that, that's kind of interesting to me is that, and again, these are facts from the fire department that I've gotten, in the Woolsey fire, 25% of the um, of acreage that burned was federal land and 25% was state land. So how about if everybody clears their brush? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd like to see. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.